Proudly coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee, this is the Frontier Podcast. I'm your host, Ledge, and we are powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on iTunes and join the conversation at the Frontier Pod on Twitter. Giddy up! No stranger to screens, very big and small, David Shapendong was the director of technical ops to IMAX before flexing his entrepreneurial muscles. He's now the CTO of Maestro Games, a startup that's helping to build technologies that incorporate music therapy with VR gaming to help people with anxiety, PTSD, autism, and other stress-related ailments. In this episode, David and Ledge chat about the differences in scaling between small and large organizations, having a fail mindset or first attempt in learning, and utilizing a trust and verify approach to technical hiring. David, thanks for joining us today. Great to have you. Thank you so much, David, for inviting me. A pleasure to be here. Fantastic. So just for the audience sake, uh, why don't you tell us you know, your two-minute story and, and then uh, get to what, what you're working on now. Excellent. Uh, so I'm a long-time suffering IT individual. I uh, started over 28 years ago in, in information systems, started out in database structures, worked for IMAX for over 27 years, uh, building out systems, uh, culminating with uh, development of uh, virtual reality uh, uh, centers that we've rolled out, and then also content distribution system. And uh, I currently went over to my new gig uh, at uh, Maestro Games. I'm the chief technology officer there, uh, developing uh, virtual reality uh, music therapy for the medical space. Uh, we are primarily focused on PTSD and uh, occupational therapy for our start but we've been discussions uh, to branch out into autism, Alzheimer's, uh, Parkinson's, and a number of other uh, challenges that folks have out there where music therapy can, can make a difference. So that's uh, two minutes. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, that's great, interesting stuff there. You know, I wonder what's the, just from your uh, standpoint, you know, having worked um, for the big dog there and then, you know, the, the startup and then like, what's the, What's the path of, of VR? You know, you've probably been doing it kind of on the ground, maybe longer than some of the, the hype cycle, you know, that people would be aware of. Um, what's this really look like when you're kind of deploying it and starting to build that technology? I think the as it's fairly new technology, you have to sort of pick your, your point of entry and start small and then sort of build out your, your business plan. I think that's key is that everyone sort of gets hung up on the technology, but how are you going to bring this force to uh, forth to consumers and others and make it meaningful to them? Ultimately, if you're going to succeed in a business, you have to have something that, that people want to use, want our desire. And I think uh, for any sort of technology, especially for what we're doing, it's really sitting down with our audience, our, our, our customers and saying, how can we make this work for you? And that's something that I think we've been successful so far. And I think every every organization, no matter what your your field is, that's something they have to tackle. And so you've been on, you know, the management and leadership track at a big organization. Now you're doing the startup thing. And I just wonder, like, what lessons of team building and hiring and, you know, sort of building out the, the human infrastructure have you taken with you? Because it's not easy to hire uh, project managers or consultants or developers, you know, so um, what's the, 
what heuristics do you use there? I think whether it's a large organization or a small organization, you, you have to understand what your mission is, number one. What is your goal? Uh, and then build a complementary team where you have everybody brings a specific skill set. And, you know, you want to make sure that, um, that the group as a whole works well together. You have to understand uh, individuals and their, their characteristics and make sure that you, you bring individuals in that can work with one another. Because I've seen it oftentimes uh, groups implode simply because you have one or two people that have been brought in that just don't mesh. I think that's, that's true, especially for small organizations, because you just don't have the latitude to sort of deal with the extracurricular stuff that might crop up when people just don't get along. You just don't have the, the time or money. So it's really key to pick your teams well uh, and don't necessarily get hung up too much on experience. Look for core value sets. So if you're uh, building an engineering team out, uh, does somebody have, say, documenting uh, skills or conceptual skills that uh, are strong and they just need some additional work on, say, programming language? That sort of stuff you can, you can give uh, individuals through courses, et cetera. Uh, it's really core or key, I should say, to, to focus on building your, your structure with the team. With the, once you know your mission and you get your team set up, you'd be surprised what you can accomplish. And how does that work with um, maybe remote or, you know, contract resources? You know, we're in that, obviously we're in that business, so we're always evaluating yeah. people and, and thinking about uh, maybe a non-traditional kind of way to work. You know, you're not maybe always going to be in the same room. Um, you only need an SME for a certain amount of time. You know, how yeah. much, how do you thread that needle? Because you don't want to invest uh, very, very heavily in cultural fit for somebody who, you know, maybe not on the, the permanent long-term team. I think you still have to go through that a little bit of that cycle because ultimately if you have somebody that doesn't communicate well with individuals in your group, you know, things are going to get missed. Even if they're a, a contract or short term resource, I think one of the things you do is you go through the industry is you start to build a Rolodex of individuals that have worked really well in specific areas and you see if you can start bringing them back in uh, even on a, our part time basis. Uh, I have a number of individuals that are, are working with our current organization who are with uh, USC or, or other organizations that are giving us some of their time, um, but it's not, you know, as a small organization, you know, we're looking for a completion of, of tasks that don't have to necessarily consume an entire day of an individual's time. So for us, it's really still about finding the right fit. And then, um, you know, managing the time as to, to what we can afford. And so from a management team perspective, you know, as, as the CTO, are you out there meeting with customers as well? Like, are you kind of also the chief product officer? We're seeing a lot of people, you know, kind of talk of those in the same sentence now. I think that uh, when it comes to operational effectiveness, you, you have your COOs, et cetera, becoming much more involved in the, the product cycle, even the same thing with marketing, et cetera. You want everybody to sort of be at, at ground zero to understand how it's being developed. It helps them to do their jobs better. So yes, I'm very much in the mix with customers, uh, product demos, uh, et cetera. It's not just because we're a small organization. I think in some ways, because small organizations 
have to wear, individuals have to wear multiple hats, that integration tends to work much better than in larger organizations. But I still think that even in big companies, you need to have engineering, marketing, uh, your operational folks involved in that process from the get-go because ultimately you have to listen to what your customers are saying and make sure you meet their demand. Because if you do that, then obviously you have a very good chance of being successful. You talked to me off mic when we originally spoke um, about, you know, sort of a, a trust but verify disposition to to hiring and, and managing. I would love if you would expound on that a little bit. Sure. Uh, I think there there's four uh, cores. Uh, I think trust and verify. So what does that mean? It's basically you bring an individual into your organization, whether it's a contract or an employee or uh, an outside partner, and you start to say, okay, what is it that we need to achieve? You agree upon that, and then you give them their tasks, and you know you don't wait for four weeks before you try verifying if they're, they're meeting their goals. You start small, and you start to do immediate goals, like are they meeting everything that's expected of them? And very quickly, you'll understand, you know, is this an individual or is this an organization that, you know, can do the job that we're putting in front of them? So trust and verify. Start small. Smart, start with small tasks and verify as you go. And then the other core is that let go. You have to be able to say, okay, as long as you're meeting your obligations and we're, and we're verifying the steps as we go, I'm going to trust you to do your job. And for some folks, that's very hard to let go. And that goes back to the, to the team cohesiveness. If you have somebody that's micromanaging and you have a group that's not used to it, it can cause a lot of problems. And then, you know, whenever you come out with your final product, I think one of the last of uh, my four items has always been, you know, whatever you release uh, is probably going to have something wrong with it. So accept that. You know, the uh, acronym that I learned a long time ago was the word FAIL, which is, First attempt in learning. So you basically want to be able to go out there and say, you know, we're going to try and hit as much of our mark as we can, but we're never going to hit it precise. There may be occasions where somebody can do that, but that is not something people should expect. And then it's a question of, of repeating the cycle then and saying, okay, how can we make this better, whether it's a product or a service, and go through that cycle again. And every time you do it, it's sort of like a golf game. Every time you whack the ball, you get a little closer to the hole, but you generally never get there in the first swing. And you're going to take a bunch of feedback from a bunch of pre-customers, right? As you're developing the, the product. And, and then ultimately once you get uh, V1 out there, you know, you're going to take more feedback and then, you know, continue as you, as your customer base grows, which could be quite large. Um, how do you think about and, and recommend prioritizing customer feedback because you, you can't do everything that every customer wants. You can't sort of fork your product in, you know, 10 different directions to meet each customer need, uh, which we see startups do, you know, sometimes sort of chasing the revenue from anyone and ending up yeah. with, you know, sort of a, a mixed bag product. So how do you think about prioritizing one customer feedback from another? Well, I think first if it's product focus. So for example, for Maestro Games, as I said, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and occupational therapy air, space, for example, people that are that are just stressed at work. That's sort of our, our, our opening gamut in the market. And so we tell our customers that's what we're doing first. So people that are coming at us for autism, Alzheimer's, you know, we're letting them look at our, at our, 
uh, demo product and say, you know, start thinking about, you know, what it is that you'd like to see change or done to this without having to obviously commit resources to that process. I think that's one way you can let people sort of give give your customers something to, to look at and work with and have them start providing feedback, even if you're, that's not your focus. But you have to prioritize your structure. And I think as you go down the road, obviously the larger population you can affect with a change is something you will always focus on first. But also for your architecture, when like for our populations, we're looking at having something um, in an architecture for software that we can change fairly quickly. So we're anticipating that we're going to get feedback from clinicians and from patient groups of saying, can you make this small change? Because we, we think we get better effect if you, for example, people that are suffering from PTSD, maybe there, there's a large group of them that are, are, had occurrences that it were started at night. One of our, our programs starts at night. We change it to actually go back to start at daybreak or so. And these are visual uh, stimuli in uh, VR space. We've designed our structure so those sort of changes can be done within half an hour. So those are sort of changes we're anticipating, and you structure your environment to sort of meet those uh, goals. Um, so if your customer base is something that's going to request a lot of changes, then you have to sort of think about how, how can you structure that so that your environment can, can meet those sort of goals uh, that your customers are, are going to throw at you. That's a great product lesson. You can always architect in a way that allows for and encourages change to, to be easy. You don't always have to make that change, but, but understanding that you don't know everything, you know, when you, when you set out is, is probably a good disposition. Or the other thing you should negotiate, like for example, say um, the development of a, of a, a VR scenery is probably one of the more time consuming elements in our, in our design. So somebody will come back to you and say, I would like a, a different VR scenario with different pieces of music. In this time frame, you might be able to go back to them and say, well, we can't give you the new VR scenario right away, but how about this? We can input the music into something else and modify that structure so that you get 50 or 60% of the way there. Um, there's, there's nothing to say that you can't negotiate. And most customers, if it meets their goals, are, they're quite willing to compromise. Right. And you make a great point, you know, on getting down to what's the real goal, you know, because people are going to come in very often and customers are going to pre-prescribe what they think the solution is without discussing the goal. And it takes that sort of analysis to get, you know, why do you want to make that change and what are you trying to accomplish? Very, very, very important. And sometimes I think that gets missed. I think, too, that one of the things a lot of people have different conceptualizing uh, a lot of stuff in data structures or user interfaces or um, in, in virtual reality or visual arts. So one of the things that we find very effective is doing mock-ups and giving them something that they can literally get their teeth into and give you feedback on. And that just goes back to this whole, I mean, I think one of the reasons why Agile is so successful as a, as a methodology is you take it in very small bits and you sort of, feed through a process, and then as you sort of go to the next iteration, you're, you're basically, you're, the, the changes are small, even as you work your way further down the road, because they're, they've gone back to the customer for verification. Um, sometimes you don't get it right, and you have to sort of figure how you're going to manage that, but I think with Agile, you have a lot less risk of, 
of having a major um, stumbling block down the road than you will say under waterfall or other methodologies. A waterfall is a dirty word. We can't say that, right? So. It's still used. It is still um, used. And there's, there's, there's some very... industry and other places, you know, the, I mean, you know, there, there are systems in there that have been doing it for 30 years and, you know, change is tough sometimes. And that's the other thing too, I think, when you're, whenever you're dealing with any type of organization, you know, you have to be able to, to bring change into the process. And that's oftentimes difficult, even in small organizations. To, to manage. Yeah, absolutely. What's the thing is, you know, every person you add is another uh, sort of entire network chain between all the other people and that, and that person. So it, it quickly adds up to, to be difficult. And, and you don't have to be talking about, you know, thousands of people in an organization, even you get up to 15 in one room and uh, watch what happens. Yeah. Well, I mean, just think of the, the old adage I used to uh, think about is that the more people you invite to a meeting, the harder that meeting is to plan. And that goes back for project work as well. I mean, it always goes back to my, you know, start as small and keep everything as small as you can uh, with your groups, your teams, and uh, even your customer bases. So obviously having a user group of, you know, 2,000, 3,000 people is pretty unwieldy. So if you keep your user groups that are sampling product to 10 or 15, you might miss some things down the road. But, you know, I think you can at least get a very good idea of what it is that people are looking for by doing it that way. Fantastic. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the insights and best of luck. When does uh, Maestro Games anticipate launching a production product? Uh, definitely Q1 of uh, 2019. So that's what we're targeting for right now. And uh, hopefully we'll be on time. We look forward to uh, getting the secondary update after the production launch. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io slash podcast to get in touch, and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast, and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.